My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Tonight, I'm super excited about what's going to happen in the studio. A man with over 38 years of law enforcement for the city of Chicago. He's a subject matter expert in threat assessment, unmanned drones, infrastructure protection, large-scale active threat drills, active shooter threats, and counterterrorism tactics. He has additional training in bomb threat management, protective measures, surveillance detection, radiological detection, and weapons of mass destruction along with dignitary protection but what made him one of chicago's toughest cops was the 14 shootouts that he survived these shootouts included everything from knife wielding maniacs to snipers on rooftops shooting at the police below them in the studio with me tonight a legend in the law enforcement community another brother in blue bob stash welcome sir thank you thank you very much for having me uh, I'm so glad you're here, and uh, I want to talk to you because there's so much stuff that I look at your career and I see things that happened with your career that while you came away from them uh, largely unscathed, I don't think a lot of that stuff would be available in law enforcement today or be uh, able to be brought up as much as it is. Uh, today. So I want to start out with your whole career and just kind of talk about your early life. Now, with your family and everything, did you have family that was police? Did you have family that was military? What kind of put you on this path? I, you know, I really don't know. From the time I was a little kid, all I ever wanted to be was a policeman. I didn't play uh, cowboys and Indians. I wanted to dress up as a cop right away. And I played cops and robbers from the time I was old enough to walk the streets. And it was just the career path that I'd always wanted. Uh, there's only one other person really in my family. My cousin Jimmy was a Waukegan policeman. He's retired now. But no one else in the family really had that ambition. But I did, and uh, I went to college for it. I uh, started out as a cadet at a uh, college police department, a radio dispatcher, and then finally got on a suburban department. Eventually led my way to Chicago because that's where I always wanted to be the police. Well, I've heard you say before that you really believe that Chicago police are the best out there. I think Absolutely. people from, from other departments would argue, but I think that's the good rivalry that we have between all of the departments. But I can tell you from when you started in your suburban and even the college years when you were working there, moving into Chicago in the 80s and all the way up to now, the uh, level of infamy that Chicago has gotten, a lot has changed oh. over your career uh, and, and in extreme measures. Uh, so can we talk a little bit about when you start out in the colleges and the suburbans, you're always watching for Chicago and then you finally get it. And then does it kind of put you on your top or are you like, wow, this is what I've always been looking for? Well, it was what I always wanted. Uh, the reason I went to a suburban police department was because the city had, was not testing at the time that I was eligible. So I wasn't able to take the test till 79 and I got in on the suburbs in 77. 
So that enabled me to go to a police academy and get some basic police experience because there's a dramatic difference from patrolling where I did in a suburban department that had about 23 men to Chicago, which at that time had about 11,700. And it was, you know, from a small, sleepy suburb to a big city. So I figured, let me go and get as much experience as I can. It was probably one of the most invaluable things that I ever did because by the time I came to Chicago, I had to go through the whole academy once again, Chicago Police Academy, that is. And when I did, it was so much easier, all aspects of it, because it was all new to me. Same, uh, It wasn't new to me. It was all old hat. Same with sitting through the classes on criminal law, patrol techniques, de-escalation, uh, baton training. I'd had it all. So it made the academy a lot easier, and I think it really helped me get into the department a lot more. And a lot of my friends who did the same thing that I did that left suburban departments and came to the big city, they experienced the same thing and they talk about it the same way. Well, let me ask you, because before I was, uh, I guess you would say a big city cop, uh, I was military police. Mm -hmm. What I did see in the, when I was in the academy for where I'm at now, I saw some other smaller agencies, people in the academies. And every once in a while, you see those guys, I wouldn't say have more trouble uh, through the academy, but they have maybe more uh, trouble adopting the ideas and how it's taken care of from that small to a big city. Because even though it's not um, the legality and everything, they look at it differently. They handle things differently. They handle calls differently. Uh, did you ever feel like you had any kind of trouble with that or was it smooth sailing the whole way and you just kind of built on yeah. what you already knew? You know, that's actually a good point. I mean, I mean, I, I won't say I had trouble with it and I won't say it was smooth sailing, but there were a lot of things that were, I mean, dramatically different. I mean, I, in the suburban department, if you got a call of a domestic, you turned the lights and siren on, it was the hottest call of the day and everybody raced to it. In Chicago, you know, it was one of probably eight calls they gave you at the same time. I mean, there there were times in the city where when I first got on the job, uh, they would legitimately tell you, go to the phone and call the zone. The zone was what they called the zone radio, the, the dispatcher for the two police districts. There's two police districts on each radio zone. And at that time, there were 25 districts in Chicago. Uh, one district, the 7th district, which was the busiest, had its own radio zone because it was so active. But when I first got on the job in Chicago, you know, I mean, I, I work in a suburban police department. If I got eight or nine calls in a week, that was a lot. Uh, when I got on Chicago, my very first call, I tell everybody, the very first call that I got right out of the box was a man shot at the hospital. And I went there and it turns out he wasn't shot. He was dead. So my first call on the job was a murder. And you'd, you'd get a call on the beat cars where the zone dispatchers would tell you, go to a payphone back in the days when we had payphones. Go to payphone and call the zone. He called the zone. He'd say, "All right, copy down these eight jobs," and they'd give you eight or nine assignments in a row. And they—that's the way you took them, the way they, they gave them to you. And said, "All right, call us back with the uh, dispositions when you're done," and you'd be gone for the next three or four hours. You and your partner doing nothing but going from one call to another. Suspicious person to the traffic accident to the domestic to the burglar alarm to the uh, parking complaint to whatever it happened to be except for the hot calls. You know, the man with a gun, the robberies, the in-progress calls, they go on a simulcast, you drop everything and go to those. But that's how it was. And I was shocked by that. You know, the fact that you'd write down seven, eight, nine jobs <laughs> and literally be off the radio for four or five hours because 
that's how long it took you to handle everything. Well, and and let's point out something that you brought up there and you kind of brought it up subtly was you're writing down calls today. You know, you have MDTs in the vehicles, you have computers that keep your call notes that as a matter of fact, uh, now you can even write your reports from the vehicle, send them to the jail, all those kind of things. And there's even a point now where you can do warrants and stuff over FaceTime to where you meet with judges and attorneys and stuff yep. like that over FaceTime. So let, th- let's let that be the first thing that we really kind of talk about. The difference yep. in, I won't even say the technology, but the difference in police styles from back then till now. Because you had to be a meticulous note taker back then because oh, yeah. you're writing everything down. Now you can look at your computer screen. And I'm not saying by any means that it's easier now, but you had to make sure that you had the right stuff before you hung up that phone. Absolutely. Not only the information, but I mean, just the fact that you're working a two-man car with a partner. You know, now every cop's got a radio, every cop's got a body camera and stuff like that. Back then, you didn't. It was one radio per car. The guy that drove, drove. The guy that carried the radio wrote the reports. That was the rule, the passenger. And so uh, when you made your street stops in that, the driver of the car was always the contact officer. The guy with the radio was always the cover officer. Because you never wanted to send the guy with the radio as the contact officer, because if he got shot, he can't call for help. I mean, that's how bad it would get. You know? Yeah. And you that was very important that it was done that way. And it, it was unusual, but you're right. I mean, I, you know, those little, I don't know what, 25, at this time, they were like 25, 35 cents, a little pocket notebook, mm-hmm. a little spiral. A little whip out book. I must have gone through thousands of those, thousands of those, because everything, you wrote everything down. The difference back then, though, was the institutional knowledge that you gained by writing everything down because the good cops never threw those notebooks out. And albeit nowadays with the technology, you know, the technology, once you write information down on something, it sort of goes into the past or it goes into that uh, electronic netherland. These didn't, you know, I would always write the dates on my books. You know, I started writing in this book on such and such date and I finished on such and such date. And I can always go back and say, boy, I remember last August, you know, I, we handled a job on the Verzi at a crack house. Let me look it up. Oh yeah. You know, we ran a name check on a guy. Lo and behold, that's the same nickname of a guy that's now wanted in a shooting. And that type of knowledge I think is missing nowadays to back then, because back then, you had to be an artisan of the street. You couldn't rely on the computers and the technology to help you out. The only person you had to rely on was your partner, and that's it. Well, let me ask you something tacked on to that. Uh, not only those whip-out books that keep the information and stuff for you, but you really had beat responsibility back then. Uh, you really oh, yeah. had to know the areas that you work in, and I feel like today no matter what large departments you go to, they can be broken up into divisions, bureaus, whatever it may be, precincts. But I feel like there's so much going on and cops have so many jobs and so many hats to wear these days. It is very hard to become an artisan of the street. It's very hard to stay in your area and know your hooks, know your uh, troublemakers, all that kind of stuff. When do you think we, because you've been there the whole time, when do you think we kind of started breaking away from that? I, I, I'm going to tell you, I think it was at the millennium. I think it was like around 2000 or so that we started getting to the point where everything 
started turning technological in nature. As you said, we started getting the MDTs in the cars. Uh, you started getting, uh, everybody was carrying a radio. Uh, you know, the body cams were still not in at that time, but we were already going to electronic reporting systems. You know, in Chicago, it was called the Chris system and that. Um, everything was becoming electrified and electronically controlled to such a way that I think that a lot of the ability of police officers to use the most potent tool and the most potent weapon at their disposal, their brain, was being taken away from them because now we became part of what I refer to a lot of times as a friend of mine actually uh, coined this phrase, but he calls it check the box policing. Okay. And that's what it came down to. You know, we checked the box. Do I have my MDT? Did I do this? Did I do that? When I first started on the job, my first shit, 15 years on the job, it wasn't check the box policing. It was you went out there and you were, uh, as we used to say, the king of your beat. And you had to control that beat. And it wasn't done by checking the box. It was, as you said, it was by getting to know the store owners, by getting to know who the troublemakers are. What were the bad corners? What were the bad houses? And by dealing with people on the street in a way that we're not dealing with them today. You know, I don't I don't buy into that guardian warrior BS. I there are real cops and there are cops. And the real cops are the ones that have the ability to go out there and talk to people. Because that's the only way you solve crime. That's the only way you bring peace to the streets. You have to be able to talk to people. And the cops are the ones that come to the point where all they know how to do is respond to that 911 call. And that's what they're waiting for. We never did. My, I worked with a guy with, several times. As I told you, we had one radio in the car. My partner and I had a tag team several times. We went out on the street. We forgot to take a radio with us. You know. And I remember making an arrest one time. He turned to me. He said, call for the wagon. I says, don't you have the radio? He goes, no. I said, well, I didn't take a radio either. He says, well, shit, get to a phone and call 911 and get a wagon over here. You know, and because you didn't rely on the radio. You relied on your abilities on the street to find crime and criminals. And now they don't do that because the modern day policeman is not looking out the car window. He's looking at a cell phone or an MDT screen or he's looking at something else and he's not paying attention to what's going on. He's got the windows rolled up. He's got his AM, FM radio on, maybe a CD player going in a car. Our squad cars didn't have that. The first squad cars I was in didn't even have air conditioning. You rolled down the four windows in the old Dodge Polara, and that's how you drove. So you heard what was going on on the street. You saw what was going on on the street. Nowadays, you don't see that as much. You know, I mean, even to this day, it bugs me. I drive down the street, and I see a copper a stop sign or a stoplight rather and he's sitting there and what's the first thing you see him doing he's looking at his cell phone or he's looking down at his computer in the meantime you know there could be three carjackings going on around them and he doesn't even see it not paying attention so let me ask you so who would you lay that blame on then is it the individual is it the quote-unquote corporation of policing what is it is it city hall where do you lay that blame at I start with the policemen themselves okay. because you, nobody can tell you how to patrol, you know, other than following guidelines by your department. Okay. I, I'll give you that. But it's like, you know, nobody tells me I have to look at my cell phone. I don't have to be text messaging with my wife or my girlfriend or my buddies or any of that stuff. 
I don't have to be checking the Bears and the Cubs and the uh, White Sox scores all the time. I can put the damn phone away and pay attention to what's going on in the street. So I blame the individual policemen. And secondly, I blame somewhat the administrations, and I, I like to say almost like the aura of modern-day policing. Because we're going to a point now where we're relying so much on technology that we're forgetting that, again, as I said before, the most powerful tool or weapon that a policeman possesses is his brain and his mouth. And they're not using it. You're carrying a collapsible baton, pepper spray, a taser, a firearm, a body camera, a radio, a cell phone, and God knows what else. I mean, by the time you figure out what to do, the last thing you're ever thinking of doing is using your mouth and your brain because the whole time, all you're doing in that OODA loop is trying to figure out which one of these tools am I going to use at this time on this 911 call. When you didn't have any of that stuff, it didn't matter because the only thing you had going for you was can you outthink this guy and can you outtalk this guy? And it made for better policemen. I'll take an old-time copper from the 50s, the 60s, or the 70s over any modern-day warrior that's out there right now because those guys would talk you out of trouble where the new guys would want to shoot their way out of trouble. And the best way to win a gunfight is not to get in a gunfight in the first place. Well, it's interesting that you say that when you would take a cop from the 50s, 60s, 70s, <clears throat> I, I agree with you that, that they were taught in a different way. I think the blowback you get these days from that is you say people, well, they're heavy handed. Yeah, well, that's true. And, and, and I agree with you. And I think, though, and I think we've gotten away from it. Sometimes you have to be heavy-handed. Sometimes Absolutely. that's the only way that people understand what's going on. You have to be heavy-handed. And I think that we've gone so far on the spectrum to where we're trying to gather everyone's feelings and things like that, that we've lost that, and it's taken away from that cop on the street. You know, let me give you a good example of exactly what you're saying, and let's apply it to real life. Okay. We suffered, the Chicago Police Department suffered a tremendous tragedy with the recent killing of police officer Ella French. Her and her two partners had stopped the carload of, of, of uh, offenders. When they approached that car, there were some warning signs to them, but they were the typical modern policemen, great police officers. But nowadays in Chicago, if you pull out your gun and point it at somebody, you've got to fill out a use of force report. So therefore, you're almost dissuaded from doing things that can protect yourself. Absolutely. Go back to those old time coppers. I remember the old time copper that was my FTO. He had 32 years on the job when he was training me. First thing he asked me, he says, kid, you got a hammerless snub nose? I said, no, I didn't have one at the time. I had a, I had a detective special, but had a hammer. He says, dude, you got to get a hammerless uh, snub nose. I said, why? He says, because you put that thing in your right-hand jacket pocket, and every time you walk up to a car, your hand is in your pocket on your pistol. He said, somebody tries to take you out. You ain't got time to draw. You ain't got time to point. You ain't got time to do nothing. This one, it's pointed at him the whole time. He said, if it's hammerless and it's that revolver, you got five. So what if you blow your leather jacket up? Buy a new one. But he said, get yourself a hammerless revolver. Today... The modern-day policemen, they don't even carry backup guns. They carry only the weapon that they're, they're issued, and that's it. When I came on the job, there were times I went on the street with three pistols. In the wintertime, I carried three pistols. 
because I carried one in my pocket all the time. You didn't have time to join. The training that we got back then was so dramatically different that I sometimes think that some of the policies and procedures of the police department may have led to, for instance, the tragedy of what happened to Ella French. And I think we're starting to see that across the country a little bit, where police officers are getting themselves in the situations that are happening because of policies and procedures that they're being taught. Because nowadays, the last thing they want you to do is to use deadly force or to protect yourself. Back then, when I was on the job, it was it was almost like I, I, I'm going to get out of touch by saying this, but it was almost that, you know, shoot first, ask questions later. The idea being that when you were involved in something, if there was a guy in front of you and you had a gun and he was pointing a gun at you, there, there was none of this, you know, standoff of, well, let's drop the gun. Let me let me back away from him. Let me uh, uh, disengage from him. It was like, if I don't do something now, I could end up dead. And there was no way people were going to get killed. And that's why the numbers of shootings that occurred back then by police officers was a lot greater than what it is today. Plus, also back then, there wasn't even that much body armor. I mean, body armor was, wasn't even required that much. So coppers realized you know, nowadays they, they feel a little tougher that they've got a little bit more protection because they're all armored up and everything. Back then when you weren't armored up, it was like, geez, if I get hit, I'm a dead man. So I got to do what I have to do, and I have to do it immediately. There is a difference. You know. So do you think that when you say that, do you think that that's almost been trained out of people then? If you're talking yeah. about training, do you think it's been trained out of them? Absolutely. Because what's the first thing that all new modern academies teach is that going to your weapon or going to a deadly force or, matter of fact, any level of force is a last resort. Because now they don't even utilize uh, use of force continuums. You know, when I came on the job in the 80s, you know, we had a use of force continuum. A bad guy did this. It was Pavlovian. If he did this, this was your response. If he did this, this was your response. Now they take that away, and now it's such a gray area that everything is stressed that no matter what you do, force is the last thing that you do. It's the last thing that you do. It's the last thing. Well, sometimes by the time you get to the last thing to do, you're the guy laying on the ground bleeding from a head wound. You don't have that time. And I think we are training that out of it. I, I think the way that we train policemen in this day and age is contributing a lot to the attacks on them, to the injuries on them, to the deaths that they're suffering. Well, I heard you say uh, in an interview, uh, one thing that you learn, no matter how long a day you work, you're the one going home at the end of the night. You do what you have to do to defend yourself on the street. Mm -hmm. So in saying that, that's kind of the point that I'm going at with this. You talked about that warrior mentality because a lot of academies teach that warrior mentality, but it almost seems like a dichotomy or a contradiction because they're teaching that warrior mindset, but they're saying be a warrior, but know that you're going to have 30 pages of paperwork behind when you pull that gun for your use of force report and everything like that. So if you are already on the fence, because you, you've talked about that in interviews before, too, where you say you don't think that a lot of people take that into their mind before they become a police officer. They only think about it when it's actually happening. And so when you do that, 
if that person's on the fence and they're trained that way, you've lost them. They're going to go to the other side. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and see, that's part of that problem with that, that warrior and guardian mentality. You know, when you think of what a warrior was supposed to be, remember that here's part of the problem. The reason that they got away from using warrior mentality is because the warrior is always the aggressive one. It's the offensive one. If you think about that, you were a warrior. When I went into war, if you went into World War II or Korea or Vietnam and you were a warrior for the United States, you were the charge forward and I'm going to engage and I'm going to do something and I'm going to kill the enemy and I'm going to win the war and I'm going to take everything over. That's the mentality that people have when they say that policemen have the warrior mentality. What they want to do is go out there and shoot everybody that they see and beat them down with nightsticks and, you know, systemic racism and all of that kind of stuff. So they came in with this idea of the guardian, you know, and the whole idea being you got to be the guardian. Uh, you got to be the protector. I got to guard things. Well, do you think about it? The guardian doesn't really ever use force because the guy that's the guardian, the, the, for instance, the guy that is working at the 7-Eleven. If something happens at the 7-Eleven or a bank guard is a guardian of the bank, he's not supposed to get involved in the uh, robbery and interdict in the robbery or anything. What he's supposed to do is just be a good wet witness and be a guardian. So now you've got this dichotomy. You know, are you a warrior? Are you supposed to go forward and do things and be proactive? Or are you supposed to be a guardian and sit back? And I don't think police departments have come up with even the right mentality of what they're trying to train their people on. What I called myself all the time when I would go on the street is I was a survivalist. That's all it was. I was going to go on the street, do the best job possible to protect society, to help citizens, to make the streets safe. But I was going to do it with a survivalist mentality. And the survivalist mentality very simply means this. Everybody that I'm going to contact that day, bad guys, good guys, witnesses, civilians, fellow cops, myself, we're all going to survive the day and we're going to go home in one piece. That's the difference. And I will do whatever is necessary to make that survivalist mentality succeed. So I'll do everything I can to avoid using force. But if I need to use force, you know, it was like the old, uh, what was that? Uh, uh, the, the movie about the bouncer. I oh, Roadhouse. Roadhouse. Be you nice know, until it's not be, time to be, be nice. nice. Be nice until it's time to be me. <laughs> yeah. That's basically the survivalist mentality. You know, I'll give you every option possible to comply with the law. But if you want to continue to not comply and I need to use force, then I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to use whatever force is necessary to uh, complete the arrest or to take you into custody or to protect myself or protect somebody else. And I don't think that we're seeing that in modern day policing right now. Now that guardian mentality is taken so much that what they want to do is the first thing out of everybody's mind now is de-escalation, de-escalation, de-escalation. Sometimes you can't de-escalate, especially when that 45 bullet is whizzing past your ear. It's not time to de-escalate anymore. It's time to defend yourself and survive. Well, let's build on that a little bit. Another thing that I heard you say was a lot of uh, a lot of departments, a lot of uh, training talks about stop the threat, stop the threat. Uh, right. you're, you're shooting to stop the threat. You say that you're not trying to kill the person. You're trying to save everybody else. And you've said it a couple different ways. And maybe I misunderstood how you said it, but... No. 
by killing that person, you have saved countless others or however many it would have saved in the future from them doing anything. That kind of mentality is not used either, because once again, we get into that thing where people think, well, that's heavy handed. He's talking about killing someone again, when actually you're talking about helping everyone else survive. And people don't understand that until they're in that situation, until it's them that is surviving or them being saved. And that goes to uh, just the public in general, uh, to government officials, things like that, until they see it. I wonder if you know or if you have any idea or you've thought about how do we get away from that? Because I had uh, Ralph Friedman on here last week and what he said about government officials, he said the problem that we have is these government officials are trying to run police departments. Police departments should be run by police bosses who know police tactics and things that can happen on the street. But I think we're well past that now. We see that in yeah. numerous cities. Chicago is a huge example of it. Uh, the mayor has a lot of heartburn with the police officers. Uh, how do we move past that? How do we fix that problem? I, I don't think we're going to do it in any kind of a short term. And, and what you're saying is exactly right. And it's, it's a premise that I've always stated. You know, for instance, even when police officers do use force, or when they're brought up on any kind of disciplinary charges. They want to be investigated by a civilian review board in this. Well, think about it. If you're a lawyer and you do something wrong, and you're brought up in front of a lawyer's an attorney's disciplinary commission, who sits on the disciplinary committee? Attorneys. Other lawyers. <laughs> Doc, doctor charged with malpractice. Who sits on the board? Other doctors. It's almost like that in every profession except law enforcement. Law enforcement is the only profession. You know, nobody tells a plumber, how to screw down a pipe. Nobody tells a sanitation worker how to pick up garbage. Nobody tells a firefighter how to fight a fire. But everybody from the civilian world to the politicians, to government employees, to the president, to everybody wants to tell a policeman how to be a policeman with no experience at all. I even had a discussion, you know, after a couple of beers with a bunch of cops, you could have some really good discussions. Absolutely. And one of my my buddies brought up, and I, I sort of uh, – we took it a little bit farther in talking about it, but we said, you know what, when you talk about the Constitution, you're judged by a jury or their peers. If you're going to charge a policeman with a crime, a use of force, a deadly force encounter, shouldn't his jury of peers be retired and active police officers? Because isn't that what the what the federal law says, the Supreme Court decision in Garner versus Tennessee, that the force has to be the reasonable force that another officer in similar or same circumstances would apply? that reasonableness but what do we have you know we've got an 80 year old grandma a 25 year old college student and a 45 year old husband with six kids making the judgment on a police officer who literally had three hundredths of a second to decide what he's going to do good example of what's going on this this potter trial that's going on right now in minnesota Absolutely. i was going to bring that police, up with the police officer who drew the taser instead of the firearm and her entire life is falling apart, and they're trying to make her out like she was a murderer. That was one of the most tragic accidents I've ever seen in my life, and those have happened before. They have happened before. But here, I mean, there's a good chance she's probably going to end up go to, going to prison over something like that. And I don't think I've heard a lot of attorneys talk about this, too. I don't think that case raised, uh, rose to the level of a criminal incident. 
I think there's a liability problem. I think the smartest thing she did was to retire and resign because she should have probably been fired from the department. But when you look at the whole set of circumstances and you watch the body cam footage in it, there was no intent to cause death or great bodily harm to this guy. None whatsoever. She was convinced she had her taser in her hand. And that's just that high stress, lack of training, and different types of training that we were just talking about five minutes ago. Okay, so let me be the devil's advocate again to you. Sure. Using that situation, you're right. When we don't put her on trial, though, let's say she doesn't go on trial for it. She retires, she resigns, she's fired, whatever it may be. She goes away. And then we have uh, the summer of 2020 again. We have it again. And so it almost seems, you talk about that OOD loop, it almost seems like we're stuck in this loop where it doesn't matter what decision that's made, prosecute, don't prosecute. Some of these groups are saying, no matter what the outcome of the case is, no matter what the verdict is, we are going to riot. And we saw cities burn to the ground. Absolutely. And so I guess my question would be, if there's no right answer, what's the answer? You know what? I, I, I wish I had one, but unfortunately I don't. But it goes back to leadership, the politicians, leadership of police departments, leadership of, of cities and municipalities. When people step out of line, the law needs to be enforced, period. The law needs to be enforced. These cities burn down because politicians and leaders allowed that to happen. There is not a policeman on the street in any city in this country that stood through those riots and would have allowed those riots to happen if their bosses would allow them to be the police and to do something about it. My God in heaven, you abandoned a police station in Minnesota and let radical rioters burn it to the ground and did nothing. Have you ever seen the 68 Democratic Convention in Chicago? That would have never happened in 1968 in Chicago. Do you remember Mayor Daley? In 68, during the riots, when they were killing people on the west side, and he issued his shoot-to-kill order for arsonists and shoot-the-maim looters, you know, he issued that order on a Thursday. 36 hours later, the riot was over. It was over. It's done. The problem is we will never get away from those situations as long as, from the top on down, we allow it to happen. And unfortunately... There's no way to teach somebody leadership and good decision-making if they don't want to abide by the tenets of leadership and good decision-making. And most of these mayors, governors, chiefs of police, they're political animals, and that's all that they're looking for and seeing. And it's a shame. So with that, you know, when you talk about this shoot-to-kill order and 36 hours later it's over, don't you think, though, that sometimes the threat of force is better than the force itself? Oh, absolutely. I, absolutely. I, and I think that's why those things end 36 hours later, because people are like, oh, shit, if I do this, this might happen. And you start engaging people to think like, oh, this might not work out the way I thought it was going to work out. Absolutely. But once again, we go back to we have people making decisions and people rioting and telling the police how their job needs to be done. Yep. 
And in the end, I believe that that more than anything is going to be what hurts police. And I mean that physically, mentally, yes. every single way. That's going to be the way that I, I work with a guy that always says, sometimes you get the department that you deserve. Yes, absolutely. And I agree with you 100%. I mean, uh, again, the changes in law enforcement have to come from the top. Because if the top doesn't approve those changes, the guys on the bottom are never going to be able to do anything. The basic cop out there, the patrolman, the guy on the street, the deputy sheriff, the police officer, whatever his rank or position or title is, he knows what to do. He's been trained what to do, and he wants to go out there and do it. But he's constantly being hamstrung. If you allow the police to just be the police and follow the law and quit worrying about you know, people's opinions and people's uh, um, the, the legality of uh, the litigation more so than the legality, constantly fearful of the litigation, we'd be able to do something. You know, I used to, when I, when I taught classes, DJ, I would, would teach a class and I would say, when you're on the street as a policeman, who's the most important person? You, because I got to go home at the end of the day. That's what I've always said, right? Secondly, if you're my partner, you're my number two concern. My number three concern, other cops. My number four concern, the citizens. My number five concern, the bad guys. Now, that's the perspective of virtually every deputy, every policeman, every copper that works the street, whether he's a detective, a SWAT officer, canine, doesn't matter. Street cops, that's their mentality, right? What's the mentality of the police department in the city for which they work for or the county? Who's the most important person? The citizen. Who's the second most important person? Because of litigation in this litigious society, the bad guy. And then who's third? The last three are rolled up into one, the cops. And I call that the hierarchy of survival. The hierarchy of survival for the policeman is the cops are first, then the citizens, then the bad guy. But the hierarchy of survival for the police departments in that is always the citizens first, because what they say matters. Secondly, the litigious bad guy who's going to sue when he's arrested or, or, or forces used on him. And then we got to worry about the cops last. And that's why suicide rates are up. That's why cops are leaving the jobs and everything. Nobody is backing up the cops. Nobody is helping out the cops. They're all concerned about, actually, in most places nowadays, that hierarchy of survival has changed, where it's not even the citizens first, it's the bad guy first. We're more concerned about the bad guy than we are about the citizens. Look at all these smash and grabs that are occurring across the country. We don't give a shit about the store owners or the businesses that are being looted. We're more concerned about, well, we can't chase these guys. We can't arrest them. We have to have judicial reform. My God, he only stole $5,000 worth of stuff. I'll make that a misdemeanor retail theft. Are you kidding me? So there is a just a general breakdown of society. And when society starts to break down and dissolve, then the law enforcement officers stop doing their jobs. Because remember, law enforcement has that magic word in the middle of it. Force. Law enforcement. Without force, you're impotent. And even Pascal, the very famous uh, uh, philosopher, said the same thing. He said, law without force is impotent. 
And that's how we are. We're, we're an impotent society right now because we allow the bad guys to prevail instead of the good guys. So tacking on to that, you say people are leaving in mass numbers, and they are. Cities across the United States, uh, they're having trouble hiring very much. Now, the problem I see with that is, one, after a while, if you can't get enough cops, you have to lower your standards. And if you lower your standards, you start scraping the bottom of the barrel. And then what happens from that is you get guys that shouldn't be there or uh, whoever shouldn't be there, and you get stuck in this loop to where it just gets lower and lower and lower. And at some point, you have to step in, raise the standards, raise the pay, raise, I would say, more than anything, uh, is backing them, knowing that their leaders are going to go to bat for them. I think that's the number one thing. And you're right. But, but, you know, a lot of the stuff is cyclical. I mean, we saw the same thing in the early 80s. Only I'll go to South Florida this time. We saw the same thing in that where the crime wave was so dramatically violent in Miami and in Dade County at the time that they were hiring coppers like crazy. And they couldn't get enough of coppers to apply for the job. So what did they do? They lowered the standards and all of that. And then they started getting guys that were almost like street thugs in that. And we ended up with incidents like the Miami River cops and some of this other kind of stuff. We're going to see that again because what's happening now is you're right. Chicago's lost just this year alone between retirements, leaves of absence, and people who just flat out resign. Chicago lost about 1,000 officers this year. 1,000 officers. When I in the mid '90s, when we were when we had the lowest murder rates and we were the most prestigious police department in the country in the mid '90s, we had thirteen thousand seven hundred police officers. Right now, we barely have twelve thousand in a city that legitimately should have fifteen thousand to properly police it. So, the numbers are dropping more and more and more and more. And we're going to see that. But, you know, it's almost like alcoholism or drug addiction. Until you hit rock bottom, you're not going to be able to bounce off of that rock bottom. And we have to wait till we get rock bottom. And we haven't reached it yet. We're here, going to. Trust me. Well, here, not to cut you off, but it makes me laugh when you say that. Because I think back, like we said, to the summer when cities were on fire. Yeah. If that's not fucking rock bottom, what's rock bottom? I mean. Yeah. Well, rock, getting towards rock bottom is what we're seeing right now. You have 12, 12 or 14 cities, I think it's up to 16 cities now, major cities of populations exceeding at least, uh, I think it's 150,000 people. 16 cities, unprecedented murder rates that they haven't seen like they have in the last 40 years. Chicago right now, we're at about 826 murders. We've probably got more murders in Chicago than New York and L.A. combined. There's a murder committed in Chicago literally every 10 hours. Every 10 hours. There's a person shot in Chicago every one hour and 54 minutes. It's it's absolutely amazing how violent the streets are. And even in the 70s and the 80s, we didn't see that. Look at New York. New York at one time had as little as 250 homicides. They got like 400 right now. Look at Philadelphia. Philadelphia never topped 500 in its entire existence. It's over 500 murders. That's the rock bottom. And you know as well as I do, and I'm going to say it here first. Rock bottom will be when some prominent politician, movie star, or whatever is gunned down in the streets 
And then all their friends, all of these people that are complaining about the funding the police in this, are going to come up in arms and start screaming, we need to do something about the crime problem. And then all of a sudden you'll start seeing that rise and we'll start getting uh, control of the streets back a little bit. That's what it's going to take. I, I, I see that taking a very long time to happen, though. I, I exactly. think we're probably still legitimately 10 to 15 years out from that. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, I, I, I would almost agree with you. I always said we're not going to see a turnaround to policing for another at least five to seven years on the low end. Five to seven years minimum before we see any kind of changes. Yeah, I, I, I just it, it just it's a different kind of society. And, and you talk about from just your perspective, 80s, 90s, 2000s to the 2020s. Um, it, it's a completely different world out there. Yeah. It used to be a job that was respected, was held high. Not anymore. No, not at all. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you what, if I was a brand new kid coming on the job right now, there's no way I'd be a policeman in this day and age. If if I was starting my life over right now, I wouldn't do it. Knowing what I know right now, not the time. I'd find another honorable profession and I'd wait to see if there was any kind of changes because I, I'm terrified for these guys on the street right now. Because every time, no matter what they do, they try to scapegoat them or something. We've never seen police officers prosecuted as much as they are nowadays or being fired for everything nowadays or disciplined for everything nowadays. And why would you want to come on the job? You know, you, you've got to be crazy. You're going to sacrifice, first of all, getting killed on the job because it's more violent now than it has been in probably 25 years. You're going to sacrifice uh, getting sued or getting pr criminally prosecuted and, and have your entire family destroyed and everything else, it's it's just not worth it. That's why they can't get anybody to apply for the job and take the job. Well, and speaking of that, let's let's kind of move on because what, sure. what kind of made you the cop that you were were the positions that you held. You were a homicide sergeant. You worked in narcotics. You worked anti-terrorism. You worked tactical. Um and you learned all those, I think, from hearing other interviews, reading about you. I think you learned a lot of the stuff that made you good at those jobs from your shootings. Because I feel like every shooting that you were in, not that you necessarily learned something different. I think you learned something different about yourself with each shooting. Um, and that goes back to your very first one, where you say that you were in total shock on that one. You were not prepared for that gunfight at the start of it. In the yep. end, it worked out, but it took you totally off guard. Yeah, it took both my partner and I off guard. We, we never expected it because the guy that uh, we ended up engaging with, who was uh, attacked us with a knife, was a guy that we had arrested several times before and never had a problem with him. Uh, it was always, uh, he was always very compliant. He was never armed before. I don't know what changed that day. And the last thing that we ever expected was the fact that he would try to attack us in that. And that was one that was, like I say, not only completely unexpected, but the fact that I don't know what his mindset was that day, but he just did not want to stop. And, uh, I mean, everything that we did, we, we shot that guy 14 times, and he still lived for 10 days after that. And we hit him with big bore guns, 45 long Colts and 44 specials. And... He just would not go down. And that one scared the shit out of me. And that was the 
primer for everything that happened in the future. I said to myself, if this guy had had a gun instead of a knife, my partner and I'd probably be dead today because we couldn't stop him, and we couldn't stop him. Well, can you set up this whole story? I want you to kind of walk through it. Um, sure. Just, just how because listening to the story and reading about it, um, this guy was not. I mean, he told your partner he was going to cut his head off. Uh, yeah. And and like you said, you had dealt with this guy before. Uh, he was a known gang member, known drug dealer. But can you kind of set up the whole story and just walk us through it? Because it's a crazy yeah. story of just how it ended up so. Um, I mean, deadly. The whole situation ended up so deadly with him. Yeah. it's uh, The guy was a, a Cuban Marolito. He'd come over on a boat lift in 1980. This was, uh, this was in 1984. Um, he, and he got involved with local street gangs in the area that he was living in, Latino gangs, and he was a known drug dealer. And he was known to sell both cocaine and heroin and marijuana, whatever, around a particular park. So my partner and I were on a tactical unit, plain clothes, and uh, we were patrolling around the park, see if any of the gangbangers were hanging out. And lo and behold, in front of this apartment building, uh, we saw this guy standing on the parkway. Now, you have to remember these apartment buildings in Chicago, this particular one was sort of U-shaped, and uh, it was four stories, and there were probably probably 40 apartments in this particular building. And we see this guy out in front. So my partner says, hey, listen, let's bury the car. Let's walk back on foot and watch him. He's probably out there dealing. And if we can see him make a couple sales, maybe he'll go back to where he's got his stash and we'll grab him. You know, we'll make an arrest. So we said, okay. So that's what we did. Now, remember, two guys, we only got one radio. So my partner didn't have a radio. I had the radio. So the kid's hanging out there. And it looks like he does make a couple of deals. And we said, you know, we probably got enough now for a street stop. But he walked in towards the building, in, into the uh, vestibule, of, not the vestibule, but the courtyard of this U-shaped building. And we lost sight of him. And my partner said, stay back here. I, w- I was probably three houses away, which would be about uh, maybe 100 yards. He says, let me walk up there. Let me see if, where he's at. You know, I don't, I mean, we're not going to walk up there and identify ourselves and grab him. Let's, let me get a better look, new position, see if I can see where he's at. So my partner goes up towards the building. He can't find the guy in this. He walks into the courtyard. He's not in the courtyard. So my partner steps in through the, the vestibule, into the vestibule of the building, and this guy steps out from around the stairway, uh, stairwell, and my partner sees him. And uh, we don't know what he was doing to this day. I think he was taking a piss back there. My partner thinks he was probably re-up, and that's probably where he had some of his Dope stashed. The area was searched by the detectives during the subsequent investigation. We don't know what he was doing back there. So my partner grabs him, and uh, as he uh, as he grabs him, they're like right in the threshold of the doorway. So he pulls him outside. He gets him gets him outside of the building, and he's going to basically put him against the wall. And as he's starting to put him against the wall, the guy starts digging in the front of his waistband, and all of a sudden comes up with legitimately a kitchen knife you know like a uh like a steak knife it's got about a six or seven inch blade with a black handle on it and as he's coming out with the knife my partner grabs him by the shoulder and bends him over as if to push him away and as he bends him over he pulls his snub nose out of his jacket and the guy yells i'm gonna kill you and my partner fires five shots into his back at point blank range and then he backs off 
And as he backs off, the kid stands back up with the knife in his hand, turns towards his partner and says, I'm going to cut your fucking head off. And my partner's thinking, what is going on? So he goes under his jacket, pulls out his pistol. He had a uh, Smith & Wesson 45 long Colt. He pulls that out, steps back. The guy comes at him. They're literally about arm's distance apart. And my partner fires four into his upper torso and a couple into his belly. The guy bends over, swings the knife at my partner a couple of times. My partner backs away, sort of stumbles in that. I hear the shots. I heard the first series of shots. And I called for help on the radio. And I started running over there. And as I get over there, I come into the uh, vestibule, not the vestibule, but the courtyard. And here's this guy. He's got the knife. I see the knife in his hand. He's literally about maybe eight feet away from my partner. He's got the knife held out in front of him as if he's moving it back and forth like in a slashing motion from left to right. And my partner is desperately trying to jam a speed loader into his revolver. And he's yelling, shoot him, shoot him. He won't stop. And I saw the guy, and he turns towards me, and as he did, I came up with my pistol. I had a Smith & Wesson 44 Special, and uh, I fired. And uh, he, he threw his left, he had the knife in his right hand, he threw his left hand up, and the first round hit him in the hand, took one of his fingers off, hit him in the left shoulder, and he started yelling crazy-ass shit. With the auditory exclusion, it was just like, you know, F you, and I'm going to kill you, and all of this stuff, and... He started to take a step toward me, and when he did, I fired three more rounds. And uh, I basically stitched him from the chest down. My last round actually went low. I hit him in the kneecap, blowing his kneecap out, and that's what caused him to fall to the ground. And when he fell to the ground, he still had the knife in his hand. My partner got his speed loader in. He ran up to him, pointed his gun at him, and then was able to kick the knife out of his hand. And then we backed away, and then the first help car got there. So we hit this guy four times with a 44, six times with a 45 long Colt, five times with a 38. He fought the ambulance crew all the way to the hospital. He lived for 10 days after that before he finally expired. He had no uh, he had a very low blood alcohol content. He was like 0.03 or 0.04. He had a little bit of marijuana in his system, nothing else. He was 5'7", about 145 pounds, and he just did not want to die. And that was the most frightening thing that ever happened to me because, I, as I said afterwards, I kept thinking to myself when we talked about it later, we said, if this guy had had a gun, you know, a knife, you got to get close and stab somebody. But the gun, he could have just stood there and shot us, and we would have been able to do nothing about it. But I've never seen anything like that in my life. I mean, this was completely opposite of everything that I've ever been taught. You know, you shoot a guy in the chest, he's going to fall back five feet, hit the ground, and, you know, a twenty-two will spin him around and everything else. And none of that happened. None of it. It was the most frightening thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And it, it, it changed the way I looked at my job and my survivability and everything from that moment on. Well, let's talk about that. What did it change about your survivability? Because you always thought you were going to make it home, but now you saw how bad things can go very quickly. Right. Do you do you ever, I don't want to say second guess the job, but do you ever think like, ah, 
you know, th this place is, uh, <laughs> it's, well, it's different. It was different. But again, as I've said before, I reconciled early on, even in the Suburban Academy, that this is a dangerous job. And the reason that you carry a firearm is because someday you may have to do something with that firearm. And utilizing that firearm, whether to protect yourself or protect someone else, is your duty. That's your sworn duty. So I played the, you know, the what-if games and the when-if games from the very beginning. And I think that the mentality that I had was different than a lot of other people because I was always convinced that I would someday get in a gunfight. Because I felt that if I trained myself that way, my mind anyway, if I trained myself that I was going to get into a gunfight, that mental rehearsal would allow me to survive it. And I reconciled the fact before I ever hit the street that there's a good chance I might have to someday shoot somebody or kill somebody. And I might get shot and I very well may get killed. And I reconciled that right away in the academy. When this happened, had... I not done that in this particular incident, I don't think I would have even responded to, in, the, in the manner in which I responded. I mean, there was no question when I got in that courtyard, I knew exactly what I needed to do. There was absolutely no hesitation. The shock of the incident was afterwards because it was different from everything I've ever seen in cowboy movies and cop films and everything else. You know, you get shot, you go down, hit him center of mass, you know, all those years in the academy and all that training, hundreds and thousands around, hit him center mass, two, two in center mass. You know, he's going to go down. He's going to go down. Dude, this guy got hit six times center mass, and he didn't even slow him down, much less knock him down. And that's where that change actually started. And I said, okay, now I have the ability to survive, but I got to come up with some way that, God forbid, if this happens again, especially if this guy has a gun, what am I going to do? And I said, well, first of all, I got to get better with my pistol because my shots were wide. Like I said, I one in the shoulder, one in the chest, one in the belly, one in the leg. I mean, my pattern was about two and a half feet long. I went to a lot of training. I went to gun site. I went to the Chapman Academy. I started, you know, going to uh, shooting schools and that. I started practicing on a regular basis. And then my partner was the one who brought it up. He says, hey, you know, when we go to the range, man, let's do this. He says, let's blow up a balloon about the size of a cantaloupe, tape it on a uh, the target's head, and he says, let's start shooting for the head. He said, if, if we're going to stop somebody, if somebody's trying to kill us and we need to stop them, about the only thing that's going to work is a headshot. And just like snipers are trained to take out the T-bone the in that, we started training and shooting for the head. The next few gunfights that we were involved in, both him and me, um, when we shot him in the head, the fight stopped right then and there. So it changed the way I looked at it. That's why I said, you know, I, I never said I wanted to go out there to kill anybody. But let's be honest about it. If you utilize the term stop the threat, what's the fastest and quickest way to stop the threat? With a headshot. So that's how we started training. We started training for that. We changed the difference of the Mozambique that Cooper used to teach, Jeff Cooper used to teach, you know, two to the body, one to the head. We said, don't even waste your time with that. One, one to the body, one to the head. Or one to the body, one to the pelvis, especially nowadays because of proliferation of body armor. 
So that's what we started doing. We started training ourselves to do two things. The one thing we learned from that gunfight was when I shot him in the knee and blew his knee out, it didn't last. Mechanically, he fell to the ground. That stopped him from further attacking us. So we started shooting for the head for an instantaneous stop. We're shooting for the pelvic area because if you strike a guy in the pelvic area and break the pelvic bone, the hip bones, or anything like that, mechanically they can't stand and they go to the ground. And you've now stopped the threat. So it all brought about a different way that I started looking at if I did have to do it again in the future, how was I going to train myself to respond differently and better than that first time? When you say that, uh, if I remember correctly, watching an interview with you, uh, you took out a lot of this guy's major organs. You even blew out entrails and everything, and the guy kept going. Like yes. People think that once that happens that the fight's over, but this guy was dragging no. stuff behind him. Yeah, the, virtually, like I said, I you know, the the human body has the capability to do things that the average person would never believe is capable. They're capable of. Um, I remember in the suburbs. Uh, I remember assisting a, a local police department, a neighboring department, with a guy that was hit by a train. When they found this guy. He was actually hobbling on one leg. The train had cut one leg off, and he was actually hopping on one leg across the field, trying to get to the street to where the ambulance was. Now, how, how could femoral artery cut right open? This guy's squirting blood like crazy. You would think he would drop and die instantaneously just from the shock of being struck by a train. Yet he actually ran something like 60 or 70 yards before he collapsed. And unfortunately, he eventually died from that train accident. But, I mean, look what that human body was able to do. When I was a homicide detective on the west side, we had a very well-known gangbanger one time. He was shot 11 times with an AK-47, including a headshot. He's still alive today. Granted, he's pushing himself around in a wheelchair, but he's still alive today. I mean, how many people you know survived 11 hits from an AK-47? The human body has capabilities far beyond what we want. That's why we always teach policemen, if you're hit, if you're shot, God forbid, or you're injured, or you're punched in the face, it doesn't mean the fight is over. Keep going and going and going and going. Because as long as you have that mentality to live and survive, you will live and survive. Well, I want to talk about some of the statistics from your uh, gunfights that you were in. So you... Most of them were close, under 12 feet. Um, yep. You had two long-distance ones, uh, and yep. that's the one I want to talk about real quick now. Well, not real quick, but you had a sniper uh, that was shooting down into police from rooftop. Yep. Now, this was not only long-distance, but there were multiple uh, bad guys. Multiple offenders. It, it, it was a planned attack on the Chicago police in retaliation for the killing of a uh, of a gang member, a gang leader, by a, a police sergeant. And uh, it was a setup. They uh, ambushed the cops when they got there. Uh, we, we had inclinations that it was going to happen. And these guys, uh, one of them was armed with some type of an automatic weapon because even on the radio tapes, you can hear the automatic gunfire. Uh, some of them, most of them had handguns. We know there were a couple of rifles involved because of the rounds that hit a couple of the squad cars. They were 
high caliber rounds. Well, actually, one of them was a 270 Winchester, so we know that they had at least a 270 caliber deer rifle out there. Um, and those were relatively long shots, yeah. Those were across rooftops, so 40, 50 feet. So can you walk us through this one? Because this one's going to be different than your first one. This one is a planned attack on you guys. I think your first one was very much spur of the moment. Uh, it was just happened because of the situation that was going on. This was planned. You guys had an indication that this might happen. So how do you go into this one? Do you go in any differently? Are there other things that you're looking at now because you're thinking, hey, this possibly could happen? Or are you treating it like you did for all the other ones? He treated it exactly the same. This one was extremely confusing because there were so many people shooting at the same time. Nobody even really knows who shot who at what time. I mean, this was literally a gun battle. I mean, if you can picture, let's say, you know, the Germans and the Americans in World War II shooting it out across a field at each other, that's exactly what they this was. There was so many shots fired, it was on there was somewhere over 200 rounds that were exchanged. Uh and that, and everybody w was was shooting at that time. So all you did is you sought cover, you saw a bad guy shoot at you, and you'd fire back at him in the hopes that you'd be able to hit this guy. And that's exactly what it was. It was just an exchange of gunfire at long distances. Same thing happened on Little Street with the hostage situation when a policeman was killed. You know, the guy fired at us from the house, and it was just your returning fire at what you perceived to be a target that you could see in a window pointing a gun at you. But there's no way to be 100% certain that, you know, it's not like a, that 25-yard shot on a PPC course you know, one-handed with a 45, and, you know, you've got uh, uh, 10 seconds to fire five rounds. You know, that's not what it is. It's just you see this guy, he's pointing a gun at somebody, and you're trying to take him out. It's so chaotic that there's no way to be able to sit down and define a minute-by-minute or second-by-second -second, uh, outline of, of what actually transpired. It was fire your rounds, reload, fire some more. So let's set up parameters on it, though. First off, how long was the gunfight? And number two, what kind of weapon are you using in this gunfight? How long? Jesus. That, uh, well, from the first shot to the last shot, I would say 35 minutes, 40 minutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I'd say the whole incident till we cleared the rooftops in that, probably about two hours, three hours. Uh, before we got enough of help there in the helicopter and everything else to uh, clear the rooftops. And uh, that time, by that time, I had transitioned away from a revolver and I was carrying a uh, Smith & Wesson 45 automatic, uh, 4586. So I had that with uh, two extra magazines and then I had a, uh, a three inch Model 65, uh, six shot uh, 357 with uh, 12 extra rounds, so 18 rounds with that. And, fired off just about everything i had i think i had uh three or four 38s left when it was over another thing that comes to my mind i heard you talk about that there weren't ever well there were shotguns in the vehicles but there was a lot of different stuff that went wrong with shotguns in vehicles they started putting them in the trunk they were bouncing around there there you've had a very troubled career with shotguns uh and yeah. i don't mean you in particular i mean the chicago police department in particular um you you talked about patrol rifles and stuff 
When you get into a gun battle with guys that are firing deer rifles and it's a setup ambush, you're just firing a pistol. Is there anything, one, that uh, you would change about maybe your loadout that day or something that if this is just looking back, perfect planning, something else that you would do differently, a different weapon that you would carry or that you wish you would have carried. Uh, and then when you go into that, you're talking about three magazines of your 45. You've got six shots in there. Very, very little um, that you're carrying. And you're talking about a gunfight that lasted 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, let, let's be honest about it. You can never have enough of ammo. You know, talk True. to anybody that's been in the military. It's the first thing that they tell you. You know, I'll dump two canteens to carry four extra magazines. What the hell? I'll take as much ammo as possible. But again, when you look at it for the basic police officer, you don't really expect that. I mean, even though we had inclinations that the, the, the gang wanted to do something, that they wanted to try to set up a copper, we thought it would be like a one-on-one -on -one thing. Nobody ever expected them to have multiple firing positions and multiple windows and rooftops with multiple weapons. I mean, nobody expected it. Had we done, had we had that inclination and, and had we done our homework and found out more intelligence that this was a planned attack, the first thing we would have never done is gone into that area. Once again, as I said, the easiest way to survive a gunfight use proper tactics, don't get involved in the first place. We would have never gone in there. We would have backed down at that time called, at that time, we didn't have a full-time SWAT team. We had uh, what was called the HBT, Hostage Barricade Terrorist Team. We could have called the HBT team to come and deploy into the area with us and get them up on the rooftops. You know, they have long rifles. They have the sniper teams, everything. You know, it's a SWAT team, but at that time it was like part-time. There's a lot of things we could have done tactically. I've never believed that, um, you know, the amount of ammo is what's important for what you're carrying. If you're carrying a, what, what we would call the basic load, you know, I was a big fan that no matter what weapon I carried, I carried at least two extra magazines for it. When I went to single stack 45s, I, I, after that, the only thing that I changed is instead of carrying two extra magazines, I got two piggyback pouches and would carry four extra magazines so that I had a little bit more ammunition with me because everybody else on the job was carrying nine millimeters and, you know, they had their Berettas and their Smith and Wessons and their SIGs and that, and they all had, you know, 15 round magazines. So these guys had like 45 rounds and I had 25. So I said, well, you know what, I'll get piggyback magazines and I'll just carry four magazines. I've got a little bit extra ammo if necessary. But that was that and Lil Street were the only times that I've ever needed more than, you know, a magazine load or a magazine and a half. And you can't plan for that once in a lifetime incident for anybody on the street, whether it's a concealed carry holder, a police officer, whatever. You have to plan for what's most likely to happen. Uh, a great trainer that I trained with and trained under, a guy by the name of Andy Cassavent, used to always say, he said, whatever you do, tactics, equipment, mind, uh, mindset, thought processes, anything, you have to answer the question, will it work moderately well under all conditions? And that's what you have to prepare for, what you can, work, what you can do that works moderately well 
under all conditions. And that's how I've always, you know, when I go on a street, that's what I carried. I carried that adequate number of equipment with me because otherwise you wouldn't be able to move. You know, we're a policeman. Again, I'm not invading Normandy. I'm a policeman. And that error that day was tactics. We should never have gone into that area unprepared the way we were because we didn't expect that to happen in that manner. You know, we expected the a gangbanger to jump out of a gangway and pop a couple of shots at the squad car when it pulled up. Nobody expected, a, I mean, a literally a planned L ambush. And that's exactly what it was. Other than that. I don't think anybody expected it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like it. But other than that, is there anything else that you take away from that incident in particular? No, that's, I mean, that was it. Just the, the tactics that were utilized in that. And just the fact that, you know, never underestimate the bad guys because the bad guys, you know, they've, I've always said this. So half of the time they've got better equipment than us sometimes. I mean, they had an automatic weapon. I don't know what kind it was. We think it was a nine millimeter sub gun, but I mean, they, they fired probably at least three full bursts. And I'd say it was a magazine each time, you know, and, and I mean, they shot up a lot of squad cars, uh, my sergeant was pinned underneath his car for about an hour and a half. We had guys pinned in a, a vestibule of a building. Every time they tried to come out of the vestibule of the building, they'd be fired upon. They were trapped in there for about two hours before we were able to do a rescue on them. It was an absolutely unbelievable set of circumstances. So coming away from this one and seeing that distance, seeing up close, when this one happens, how many shootouts have you been in so far? That would have been, I think, my third. Okay. So uh, your second one was when your partner was shot through the door. Is that correct? No, that was, uh, let me think. Yeah, that, that was, uh, I think that was the second one. There were a couple others. Because remember, now, when I when I talk about all of these, these gunfights, I mean, a lot of these gunfights I was involved in, there was a lot of exchange of, gunfire. Gunfight is when you exchange gunfire with a bad guy. So there were others where I had people where I actually shot them, but there were other incidents between those where there was an exchange of gunfire okay. with somebody where nobody was hit. Okay, You know, he submitted to an arrest. We exchanged shots. He's eventually arrested. So it's hard to, you know, I don't have the sequence of events in front of me to right. tell you which exactly which one it was. But uh, when, when my partner was shot, uh, that was probably about the uh, it was probably about the third or fourth one that happened. That happened actually before the, uh, the rooftop incident. So it was probably about the third one or so. So can you set that one up for us and kind of walk us through that story? Well, that was one where, again, that was an exchange of gunfire where uh, we did not shoot the bad guy. Um, and the reason that we didn't is because of the fact he was holding a human shield in front of him. But my partner, we went to do a drug buy, knocked on a door. Uh, the guy opened the door, went to buy the dope, handed him the money, got the dope. Uh, as the door was open, we were going to push it in. He started to push in the door. Turns out the guy had a 357 Magnum in his hand, got the door shut, closed, and just fired through the door, hit my partner in the leg, hit him in the upper leg and dropped them in front of the door. And the guy just kept firing through the door. So we, my partner and I both opened up, we both opened fire through the door. 
and another officer was able to get our, our partner out from uh, uh, the, the front of the door. We backed off, thought we'd had a hostage situation. Obviously, we reloaded. Uh, and then we decided we were going to go. We heard this woman screaming inside. And we said, well, we got to go in. We went in through the door and fired a couple of shots. He fired at us. We fired back at him and then realized he's holding this woman right in front of him. And uh, it was just like bulls in a china shop. We just ended up ramming into him and tackling him and knocking him down on a couch. And it turned out what he had in there with him was a prostitute. He was using her as a human shield. So, and that was it. He was taken into custody. So uh, when you say something like that, what year are we talking about right now? I, I know that, that you don't know, but what, what year do we think ballpark that this is? That one was probably in... 1988 89 okay I would so, say. so we're 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 getting close to the 90s yeah we're uh, in the 90s now when i hear you say that he shot through the door you guys shot back a big thing in training now is is know your target know the background right. don't fire into there do people get away with that today no we didn't get away with it either as a matter of fact when we when they were doing the shooting investigation the uh, first deputy superintendent at that time wanted to uh, have us both brought up on charges for violating the, the, the use of force policy of firing through the door. And it was actually the chief of detectives that came to our uh, uh, our backing and said, look, you can't do that. He says, this is one of those situations where if you looked at our use of force order, there was a little addendum in the very bottom of it that said, you know, you will not place your life or the life of somebody else's at risk to comply with these orders. And he says, wait a minute, you have a wounded police officer who's laying in front of the door. There's bullets coming through the door, continuing to come out of the apartment. That officer could be struck again and potentially killed. He says, this was suppressive fire to rescue that officer. He says, one, and the chief of detectives told the first deputy, he said, and once the officer was rescued and out of the line of fire, they didn't fire through the door anymore. They only did it to rescue that policeman. There's no way they should have been brought up on charges. And it was a big internal administrative thing that went through the superintendent and they eventually decided they would administratively close the complaint that uh, it was justified at that point to shoot through the door. But yeah, I mean, our, our policies always have been same thing with windows. You know, you can't shoot at anyone unless you are clear of your target, you know who your target is, what your target is and what you're shooting through and what your background is obviously. So that wouldn't be acceptable today, uh, except under maybe similar circumstances. So in saying that, when you talk about that and, and I hear and, and it's, it's always amazing to me when I hear about shooting incidences or use of force things where you have someone come in and say, look, I want them brought up on charges. They violated use of force. Do you ever get disillusioned at all? Well, all the time. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely you do. Uh, there's no way not to. But, you know, again, that's, that's part of the mentality and the mindset. You basically know that's going to happen. I mean, if you're involved in a shooting in, in a big city, even back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, if you were involved in a shooting, there was going to be somewhere along the line some kind of a complaint filed against you for some type of a use of force violation. And that's the way it is. Uh, you just accept that. What you have to reconcile, same thing like I said with this idea of having to be 
shoot somebody or being shot when you're in the academy, you also have to reconcile the fact that you have to do things right. As long as you're not doing things illegally, you're not doing it with malice, you're not doing it with an intention to break the law or anything. If you're right, you're right. And eventually, right will always play out. And even in a couple of the instances where there were uh, major, I, I had one shooting that I was involved in where they brought me up on charges and were recommending a 45-day suspension because I had, quote, unquote, a defective firearm. And again, I didn't do anything wrong. I had to fight those charges in that. And eventually I did, in fact, win. And my 45 days were reinstated. My record was uh, you know, swept clean and everything else because I was right. So if you're right and you're legal and you're complying with the orders and you're complying with state law and constitutional law, you've got to still do your job. Otherwise, you go crazy. You know, you'll either become an alcoholic, a drug addict, or you'll end up taking your own life. And it's not worth it. I mean, if you're that fearful of it, of the uh, litigation or department charges or getting hurt, as I said, resign from this job. Find another honorable profession. There's a lot of them out there. A lot of great jobs out there. Leave the job. Otherwise, you just got to buck it up. You know, it's part of the life of being a policeman. I don't care where you're at. That's part of the life of being a policeman. So if we can ask, what was the defective, quote unquote, part of your weapon? <laughs> well, at that time, I, I got to take a step back. So in the Chicago Police Department, the authorized duty weapon at that time was a four-inch thirty-eight caliber revolver. As long as you carried a four-inch thirty-eight caliber revolver, you can carry an alternate or auxiliary weapon. And that alternate or auxiliary handgun was just about anything you wanted to carry as long as you can qualify with it. Okay. So we had guys carrying 44 mags, 45 long colts, 45 automatics, 9 millimeters, you know, Browning high powers, everything. As long as you had, because everybody carried two guns. As long as you had that 4-inch 38 with you, or if you were in plain clothes, it had to be a, a, a snub-nose 38. But as long as you had that weapon with you, you could carry anything you wanted. Well, my weapon of choice at that time, I carried a... a, a, a I was in plain clothes, so I carried that Model 65, and I had at that time a, a government Model 1911, uh, a Colt. And I shot a lot. I shoot a lot. I was shooting a lot of practice at that time. I shot a little bit of uh, competitions and that. And uh, when you're involved in a police shooting in Chicago, your weapon is sent to the crime lab for you know ballistics comparisons and that. When it was at the crime lab, when I went to pick it up at the crime lab, the guy in the crime lab report gave it to me, and he says, he says, hey, man, do you shoot a lot in that? And I said, yeah. He said, how many rounds you got through this thing? I said, geez, I don't know, 10,000 or so, maybe more. He says, well, I got to tell you, guy, uh, your sear is wearing down. And he said, if you don't get your sear replaced, uh, what's going to happen one day is either, you know, the, the, you're not, the, the hammer's not going to stay cocked, or once that hammer falls, and the slide moves, what it'll do is it's just going to follow it back down. You're not going to get like a slam fire or anything like that, but he says it's going to be a point where the hammer's not going to lock back so that it will discharge around, and, you know, the gun's not going to fire. I said, Jesus, I didn't know that. And he says, yeah, I recommend you get it fixed. Literally, the next day, I went to a gun shop and dropped it off. The investigation 
shooting investigations are done by a civilian agency. At that time, the agency was called OPS, the Office of Professional Standards. So they investigated that particular shooting and they said, oh yeah, the shooting's justified. However, according to this crime lab report, the gun had a defective part. And department general order says you must maintain your firearm in, quote, perfect working condition at all times. And since it wasn't in perfect working conditions, you violated that order. We're recommending a 45-day suspension. And that's exactly what happened. Um, inevitably, what, what ended up happening is the story I just told you was presented to the police board and everything else. And they looked at it and said, well, wait a minute. You know, I, we had... A gunsmith testified that routine maintenance of that firearm, you know, unless you were an armorer on 1911s or a gunsmith, like the crime lab guy was, you'd never know that this part was defective. And uh, ironically, if you carried an alternate or auxiliary pistol, you had to qualify with it once a year. And this particular shooting happened in January. I had qualified with that weapon and had my qualification card for it literally 20 days prior to that shooting i had qualified and they brought the sergeant in that signed my qualification card and they said department policy said you had to inspect the officer's weapon did you inspect his weapon yes i did was it functional and was it workable yes and you would have never issued him a qualification card if there was a problem with the gun right and then they brought in again the, the gunsmith and the armorer who said there's no way this part could have gone defective in 20 days. You know, it was the legal wrangling back and forth and the police board came back and said, I don't know why the hell you ever suspended this guy. He didn't do anything wrong. So I got my time back and everything else. But like I said, that's what they'll go through. And you got to just assume nobody is going to back you on this job. Nobody's going to back you when you do something, whether you're right or wrong. Everybody's looking out for that litigious type of uh, incident that's going to happen. And that's what they were worried about because they knew from the shooting there was going to be a lawsuit and they were hoping to deflect some of their uh, responsibilities on me instead of them. And that's exactly what it came down to. There's one other thing I want to talk about. Uh, you had a one-shot shooting. Guy was robbing a Burger King. Can you walk us through that one and just kind of, because that's a one, that's a very quick done. Uh, yeah. And and this is all over. He was, I guess, uh, robbing a Burger King and then hid in the back. Is that kind of how it started? It was a robbery crew. There was a crew of three guys that were hitting small businesses, bars, Burger King, 7-Elevens. And they, they were armed with a fully automatic Tech 9. They had fired it a couple of times, you know, into the ceiling to get people's attention, especially when they hit the bars. So a call comes out of a robbery in progress at a Burger King. My partner and I arrive on scene. We're in plain clothes. We're working an auto theft mission. And uh, we look inside. We don't see anybody. So we try to go into the Burger King, and the doors are locked. Well, we don't know what the hell's going on. Suddenly, we see this hand sticking out from the drive-up window. So we go around to the drive-up window, and there's a girl in there, and she had been hiding underneath the table. And she says, there's a couple of guys in here robbing the place right now. Everybody else is locked in the freezer. They're in the building right now. I said, well, the door's locked. We got no way of getting in. She says, I got the keys. So she hands us the keys. We run back to the doors, unlock the doors, and we we go in through the uh, the, the front door into the uh, like seating area of the Burger King in front of the counters. 
And lo and behold, there's a guy standing behind the counter, and he's got the Tech 9 in his hand, and he points it at us. And we immediately dive down for cover. He runs back into the area, you know, where they, the counter is here, and then the, uh, the counter is first, and then they have a space where the workers are, and then there's like the slots like in that where the burgers are, and then the kitchen in the back. He runs all the way to the back into the kitchen area. Now we're trying to decide what to do, and we get on the radio and tell them, you know, this is a robbery in progress. There's fenders in here, and there's at least one in here. He's in the kitchen area. We're in here. Get us help because we're by ourselves at this time. Unbeknownst to us, a detective unit had arrived on the scene and came to the rear of that Burger King. When this guy ran to the back, him and his partner decided, let's go out the back door. And their getaway driver was parked in the alley. So as he opens the door and the the guy with the handgun steps outside, the two detectives grab him, physically grab him and throw him to the ground. The guy with the Tech 9 backs back into the Burger King and now says, well, you know what I'm going to do? Maybe they're thinking that he's the only robber. So he immediately hides in the back of the Burger King in the kitchen area behind some boxes and that underneath the sinks. And he's huddled underneath there. The detectives call out. They came out the back door. We got the guy, but we think that the second guy went back into the kitchen area. So we started doing a systematic search now. So as we're systematically searching with the detectives, my partner and I, and a couple other coppers were there. They see the guy underneath the sink. And the detective sees him and pushes the uh, box away and grabs the guy by his left arm and starts to pull him out from underneath the sink and slaps a handcuff on him. As he does, I'm standing right over him with my pistol, and as he comes out of the sink, I see he's still got the Tech 9 in his hand, and it's in his right hand. And it and it's more or less across his body at about his right hip with the barrel pointed out towards us. And it's, the detective didn't see it, and he's pulling him out. And I said, oh, my God, this guy's got the gun. And I just stuck my pistol forward, and I fired one shot into him. And that was it. It was over. And he did have the Tech 9. It was full automatic. It was the robbery crew. And they did, I don't know, 23 or 24 robberies. Did, uh, once that shooting happens, do those robberies stop or do they continue? Oh, that was the crew. That they was were it? over. We, we caught the crew. We got the getaway driver. We got the other guy. And that, we killed that guy. I killed that guy. So. Through them all, from first to last, this is kind of the last questions about all these things. Um, what changes? What stays the same? For police departments or for me? I think for you in particular. We we know how it's gone with the police departments. We talked about that kind of originally. But for you, what changes? What stays the same? Um, I The thing that changes for me was a change in, in the department itself uh, in what my job responsibilities were. I spent most of my time in the detective division as a tactical officer and that. Um, I was a tactical lieutenant for like 13 years. So I ran narcotics and gang teams. And I think eventually, uh, you know, I went from that street policing into a unit that was Homeland Security and counterterrorism based. And that was a dramatic difference for me. You know, in 2001, when those towers dropped and we lost all those Americans, um, all police departments started looking at things in a different way. And we started to concentrate now on 
homeland security, counterterrorism, active shooters, stuff like that, that terrorist type attack. And that's a different mentality than looking at the gangbanger with a gun or the gangbanger selling dope or the stick-up man or whatever. So my entire mentality about bad guys changed in the last years on the, on the job because they were all I was worried about was the next suicide bomber or the next active shooter or the next terrorist or the next radiological weapon or the next dirty bomb and that and that mentality is completely different for law enforcement again than investigating homicides burglaries or dealing with street crime and I didn't deal with street crime for the last probably six years that I was on the job it was all counterterrorism and homeland security and it was probably the most unique thing I've ever done on this job uh, the guy that introduced me uh, to looking you up and kind of getting into your history that I work with, uh, he, I don't know if you know, but you have fans, uh, other police oh. officers are fans of yours. And I, I asked him today, I said, you want me to ask this guy, give me one question that you want me to ask him. And he said, favorite gun. Right now, right now, my favorite gun is a, a, a six hour P320 compact. That's what I carry all the time. Um, my favorite gun of all times, I had a uh, customized Smith & Wesson Model 24, which was a 44 Special, made uh, by John Jovino in um, New York City. And it was a uh, end frame with a cut-down uh, K-frame round butt grip that I put rubber pack myers on. It was magnum-ported. And it had about a two and a half, two and three quarter inch barrel on it. And that was the gun that I carried for the majority of my time as a policeman. And it's still, to this day, my favorite pistol. Uh, is there any reason why it's your favorite? That's all the description of it. Is there a reason that it was your favorite of all time? I'm alive today because of that pistol. That's why it's my favorite. That's a that's a pretty good reason. Now, the one that you're talking about now is your favorite pistol, not your all-time one. About that one, what makes that your favorite that you're using right now? Well, you know, nowadays, everybody's carrying automatics. Um, I switched several years ago to Sig Sauer's. I absolutely love the Sig Sauer pistols. Uh, my duty gun uh, when I left the job was a Sig Sauer P220. Um, when I was a detective in the detective division, I carried a P228. Um, when I first retired, I carried a P225 as an off-duty gun. But nowadays, with all of the carjackings and the robberies and everything else, I wanted to uh, go back. I've never had a striker-fired gun. I bought this one for a consistent trigger pull because everything I always had was either uh, DAOs or double singles. And... Uh, I have a friend of mine, very good friend of mine, that is a Sig Sauer armorer, works for Sig Sauer. He introduced me to the P320, especially the compact. And I said, man, this gun is perfect. It's got a lot of ammo. It's light. It's got a consistent trigger pull. It's easy to conceal. I'm a relatively big guy, so it's, you know, I can hide a bigger gun on me. And I just feel very comfortable with it and think that, and firmly believe, actually, that God forbid if I ever have to use a gun again, this one's going to save my life like the others have. Now, 
we, we've talked about a lot of this, but I want to kind of finish up our interview with you being stepped away now and you kind of having uh, kind of 2020 vision on it now. Um, I want to talk about the future of policing and with body cams, cell phones, social media, all these things that we've talked about. There's nothing that goes on out in the field now on patrol right. that's not recorded. I mean, that's just where we're at now. Whether that be body cam, surveillance cam, phone cam, whatever it may be, we're seeing that. One, is that hurting the future? Because we've talked about this a little bit, but I want your complete answer on it. Is it hurting the future of policing? And then what do you see still ahead to change for police? Uh, We talked about technology. Is there other things that you see on the horizon? Well, First of all, let, let, let's talk first about body cameras. I think body cameras are excellent. I cannot believe that in the technological society that we live in, the body cameras can't be better. I absolutely detest the ones that are worn on the chest. Um, I think they're a joke. That's what, what the Chicago Police Department have is the Avons, and they wear them on the chest. And you see this all the time. Now, I'm sure you've seen the hundreds of videos of body camera shootings and confrontations. And what do we usually see? We usually see the copper's isosceles position and that's it. We don't see what the policeman is seeing. I don't understand how we can't come up with body cameras that, you know, give a guy plain clear acrylic glasses with a body camera on one of the lenses around his head in this so that we see what the policeman sees. Not what's in front of him, but what he sees. Because The constitutional law that we're bound by on use of force says that we have to be judged from the perspective of what the police officer saw and knew at that time and not Monday morning quarterback. So we've got to improve that body camera footage so that we got the nuances of everything that this guy sees and not just from that that half-assed vision from the center of his chest which is not where his eyes are at. So that's the first thing. So I like body cameras, but I think that they need to be improved. I tell policemen all the time, friends of mine, obviously you got to worry. Everybody in the world's got a cell phone. There's there's ring doorbell cameras everywhere. There's pod cameras uh, put up by police departments. There's video all the time. You're constantly on camera. Be professional and be yourself. You know, nobody cares if you swear once in a while. Sometimes that has to happen. You know, that's part. I, you, you can't go to a, a thug on the street. Like, you know, I can't go to a guy in a Cabrini Green housing project and talk to him the way that I talk to somebody at uh, Sunday Mass. You know, it's just not going to work. you got to talk in the vernacular they understand. People will understand that like anything else. But you have to be aware of what's on. And you have to be aware of the nuances. You know, for instance, like, um, let's fall back to, to this Potter shooting. You know, she made some res gesti comments after the shooting that may, in fact, hurt her at trial. Absolutely. You know, there's stuff there that is always going to be recorded. And I tell guys all the time, just be cautious of what you're saying or doing. Be aware that those cameras are out there. That's not going to change. That's something that we have to adapt to better. Um, I think we have to 
change and increase training for police officers. I think that in-service training, once they're out of the academy, is abysmal. I can't believe that uh, we call ourselves a profession, and you have a lot of departments that maybe train their guys 8 to 10 hours a year. You have a lot of departments that have once-a-year firearms qualification. Chicago is a good example. That's ludicrous, absolutely ridiculous. The more training you have, just like you do in the military, the more training that the military has, the more professional and the better they're able to do their jobs. You should do the same thing in law enforcement. My frightening vision for the future is that this idea of the police reform will take a stronger hold and with the proliferation of non-lethal type weapons, we're going to find ourselves potentially in a United Kingdom type situation <clears throat> where we may have armed response cars out there, but we may end up with two tiers of police officers. The real guardian is going to have nothing but a can of mace and a taser, and he's the one that's going to handle about 80 to 90 percent of the stuff that's out there, and then you're going to have the other police to handle everything else. Um, God bless us if we ever get to that point because we're going to need a lot of money for a lot of police funerals. It's uh, this it, You just can't have that. you know. And I think even in England is a totally different story. If you've ever been to the United Kingdom, it's completely different than us. The mentality is different. You know, a guy runs from the police in England and he says, you know, by the, by the command of the law of the king, stop. And the guy stops and surrenders to an arrest. I actually saw it happen in London one time. I I, I almost fell down laughing. <laughs> but, you know, here, you know, you yell that out at a guy, and you know what he's going to do? He's just going to turn on the afterburners, and he's gone. You know, we're in a different mentality here. So th that's what my, my, my vision, not my vision, but my fear for the future of policing is that you're going to be actually right in your supposition that it's going to take 10 to 15 years before things turn around. And until they start to turn around properly, the potential for us losing a lot more police officers in a line of duty and a lot more line of duty deaths is going to be there. And that's the last thing. I went to far too many funerals. Uh, it, it, my third, I counted one time in the 38 years that I was on the job in Chicago, um, I buried somewhere in the neighborhood of about 180 police officers. About 17 or 18 of those guys were very, very good friends of mine. And I don't ever want to go to a police funeral again. I went to Ella French's funeral after I was retired. It was the most heartbreaking day that I've had since I retired. I, it was terrible. And the fact that that's going to happen, and every day, you know, I get notifications of line of duty deaths, line of duty deaths. And they shouldn't happen. The failures on the brass, on training, on equipment, and on the mentality of the populace. We've got to get better at explaining to the world what this job really entails. And sometimes it's a violent, evil world, and the public needs to realize that. I, I, I don't think I could agree with you more. So what's in the future for you? <clears throat> Well, I, I work part time. Uh, you know, I'm still staying in the law enforcement field. I do uh, uh, some training for uh, different agencies and, and that. Um, 
I work for a contractor for the Department of Homeland Security where I do uh, uh, counterterrorism-related training for them, specifically on weapons of mass de de uh, destruction and radiological response. And I'll continue to do that. The rest of the time, I'm going to hunt, I'm going to fish, I'm going to camp, I'm going to have a beer, smoke a good cigar, and I'm going to enjoy the rest of my life. Where can people find you if they want to take some training? Is it going to be through a company? Can it be through you? Where can people find you? Actually, excuse me. I don't do uh, no longer individual training. In okay. Um, what I do is uh, I do specific request training for uh, police agencies right now. Um, I've had a couple of agencies ask me, as like this podcast would ask me to come to speak to them or to talk about certain aspects of uh, firearms or law enforcement training. And I'll do that once in a while, mainly at, at conferences and stuff like that. But uh, I'm, I'm retired. I basically retired, retired, and I want to try to enjoy that. You know, after 40-some years of doing law enforcement, I want to have some time to myself. So I used to uh, have a company that did a lot of training throughout the That was the Letcon, right? Letcon, right. Law enforcement training consultants. So... I still contract out, as I said, to police agencies and that once in a while, but uh, I don't do training on a regular basis anymore. Well, guys, you heard it here. Uh, <coughs> leave Bob alone. He is retired now, and <laughs> he wants to enjoy his cigar, his beer, and his hunting and fishing. So I think that's going to wrap it up for tonight. I It, it was amazing talking to you. Uh, just Thank to you hear very much. the history that you've been through, the changes that you've seen, what's expected for the future. So I think that's going to be about it. Guys, if you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all of these conversations are in video form. And you can check them out there at the DTD podcast. Remember, guys, the best stories are true. And you come here every week because I give them to you. Thank you for joining me tonight. That's Bob. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See ya.